Welcome back to the Wheeler Centre and another episode from our Fifth Estate series, hosted by broadcaster and anthropologist Sally Warhaft. Today's discussion is called Safe Harbour and it takes us back to the issue of asylum seekers and refugees and Australia's attitudes and policies around them. Sally is joined by two guests and here she is to introduce them. David Mann is a human rights lawyer, a migration agent. I like that. I like that you've got the word agent somewhere in your title. (laughs) Executive Director of the Refugee and Immigration Legal Centre and he has been working for two decades helping refugees. David's led the centre's legal teams in numerous successful high court challenges to government policies. Uh, He's been the recipient of many awards and accolades and I will not embarrass him by listing them. Also joining us, uh, Mariam Vaisadeh. And uh, Mariam's also a lawyer and a community rights advocate, particularly for the rights of Australian Muslims and asylum seekers. She's an ambassador for Welcome to Australia and the founder of the Islamophobia Register Australia, where people can report real-life hate incidents. She's also really well-known, and in fact, perhaps um, best known uh, to to many people uh, for speaking out against that absolutely vile T-shirt that turned up at Woolworths with the Australian flag and uh, and the words, if you don't love it, leave. Uh, Mariam started the... Uh, campaign against that. It was withdrawn and uh, and she herself became the recipient of absolutely disgraceful online uh, hate and threats and abuse and we might talk about that a little bit later. Please give uh, Mariam and David a big warm welcome. first thing I, I want to ask each of you, and I'll start with you, David, is how did it come to this? And by this, I mean uh, a, a culture of closedness, um, of detention on offshore facilities, of locking up children. Uh, and uh, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but a, but a culture in Australia where it feels to me we're, we're against refugees? Well, I think that there are a number of ways of coming at it. And one way of coming at it is to uh, is to take an historical perspective. And I think that to understand um, where we've come from uh, in immigration policy is really important. So some of, uh, so many of you will be aware that, um, you know, one of the first acts of, uh, after federation in Australia was uh, essentially um, implementing in law the white Australia policy. And so, you know, one of I think one of the threads of our history is in fact uh, uh, one of exclusion when it comes to people wanting to come here from other places. So I, it's not the only thread, but I think it's one of them. I think that there are really competing narratives in our history. There's that, and that exclusion was not only on racial grounds, but that was central, but other forms of exclusion also. But as part of that, there are some golden threads to our history too, and that is since the Second World War, Australia has been one of the major countries, one of the main countries, resettling refugees and humanitarian entrants worldwide. So there's over 800,000 people 
have been resettled as refugees or humanitarian entrants since that time, and that's quite a different history. But if we come to the present and your question, I think that, the, to, to my mind, um, the central issue here is mandatory indefinite detention, which was introduced to our country 23 years ago in law. And why I think that that is central to what we see now is because, essentially, if you can do that to people, if you can lock up innocent people, children, families, mums and dads, you know, single people, if you can lock up people who are essentially fleeing from harm and lock them up as innocent people indefinitely and inevitably harm them, I think it opens up other possibilities of a dark nature. And really, I think that the dynamic that we see in our policy now, which comes in most recent times from that policy, comes with this dynamic in it, looking at people with problems as a problem. And I think that that is central to what we see now. It's sort of, in a way, mandatory detention has opened up the door to other, essentially opened up the door to policies like um, the inhumanity of Nauru and, Pap and Papua New Guinea, it's opened up uh, to the inhumanity of repelling people seeking our help with our navy, with, with, by military force, and a whole range of other punitive and harmful policies. Mm. Mariam, you came to Australia as a refugee from Kabul in Afghanistan when you were seven years old. Uh, do you remember what it felt like at all? Do you have many memories of being a child refugee? I don't have too many memories. I, I, I just, I think when I reflect back, obviously um, I have very fond memories, the ones that I do remember, but I think I've, despite being young, I was also very conscious of the fact that I was different um, and obviously having, you know, learning English and I remember being an ESL, so English is a second language and um, I still remember the, the teacher and her name and she was fantastic. Um, so... Yes, I'm, you know, very conscious of sort of my background in terms of how I sort of started and then I, I often reflect on um, coming here as a seven-year-old and, you know, not speaking a word of English and then um, I haven't stopped talking since. So. <laughs> <laughs> so lots has changed. And when David talks about um, the, well, the 23 years since Keating, wasn't it, uh, introduced the mandatory detention, uh, what... What's been your experience of observing those changes in policy um, as somebody that uh, you came here under a humanitarian program um, and the, the, the culture of, of, of how at least government treated refugees was much different then? Yes, it was. Um, I think there's a few points to be made in this regard. Um, the, the rhetoric around asylum seekers and refugees has gotten progressively worse and perhaps, you know, my opinion would be that they ha that rhetoric has gotten progressive, progressively worse under, a cons under conservative governments. Um, and then it's about then trying to understand why we sort of... I think we have a tendency to pin all of our anxieties and fears onto people that can be easy scapegoats and I think in this case... Um, whether it's children in detention, asylum seekers, refugees, minority, religious minority groups, in the Indigenous population, 
when you're scapegoating these communities, uh, there's very much there's very little defence. So it's very easy, and it means that these communities can you know be scapegoated for political gain, and often that's what's happened. And I think the the rhetoric around asylum seekers has you know um, literally it, it's become so toxic. It, it's it's sunk so incredibly low, um, and it's it's spiralling out of control. Um, so I think. Conservative governments and the rhetoric that they've employed, they've got a lot to answer for in terms of, you know, where it's at now, in terms of the debate and where it's currently at. Um, I think uh, the complicity is is really broad. That it that you, you can't. Uh, have... And it is bipartisan. I might also mm. mention that it is definitely. I mean, it it's a staggering to... thing to me that you can have two major parties not. Uh, at odds, really, yeah. or if one is at odds, feeling not able to express that. Yeah. What that means is that there's a complicity in the Australian general public that this is okay. What does that mean? Well, I, you know, I, I think a couple of things. One, one is that, in fact, the, the truth of it is indeed that, uh, you know, estranged bipartisanship has hung over Canberra on the question of asylum for a long time. That the fundamentals of punitive policy uh, based on deterrence have been shared by both sides of both of the major parties in both policy and largely in rhetoric too, despite you know with with some minor exceptions. But but I think that in in a way what's also been created in the body politic has been this sense of conflict, but it's a false conflict. The conflict really that we've seen that the sort of interminable political jousting has really been over which of the major parties can come up with a harsher approach to refugees. I mean, that's, been, that's what it's been reduced to. And yet, I actually think there's something else within it that has been largely unexamined, and that is that, yes, in a way, the complete, we, 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 we own this, actually, as a country, this problem. It's, it's ours. So children in detention is our problem, and it's ours. Um, and, um, and, and the reality is that having locked up innocent people and taken away something, one of the most precious things to a human being so that they can flourish, and that is liberty, having done that in our nation for over 23 years, the truth of it is, and we have to confront this, I think, the nation hasn't flinched, right? It hasn't. Mm. So locking up children has largely been a situation where the nation hasn't flinched. And what, we need to ask the question, why so? And, and in answer to that, I think it's complex because something that I think has remained largely unexamined is this, that although we have endless opinion polls and research by you know, reputable independent bodies telling us that the antipathy toward people coming by boat to Australia seeking <coughs> asylum is, tracks at roughly 70 to 80% and has for some time, there is almost no attempt to reconcile that with a completely different story, another story which is completely different in our country and has happened in recent times again, and that is that once people in those situations coming by boat come to Australia and live with us as refugees and work and live in our communities as neighbours, um, either literally or sort of broadly speaking, it is a completely different story. In fact, it's almost the opposite story. And it was before, I mean, in our recent history, uh, 15 years ago, there were about 11,500 people who came by boat to Australia from Afghanistan and Iraq largely, most of whom were found to be refugees. 
who then lived and worked in many cases in rural and regional parts of Australia and a serious social movement developed and it was called Rural Australians for Refugees. Some of you here might have been involved in it and it was transformative in the sense of, you know, sort of if I can say there's not the usual suspects, not the sort of alleged bleeding hearts, but people around Australia uh, embraced refugees, lived and worked with refugees and then expressed real concerns about the punitive nature of temporary protection visas and it mattered, uh, it mattered deeply. It's a different story and it's a story that is, I don't think anything in the last 15 years has fundamentally changed in our country uh, to the extent that that wouldn't and doesn't happen and, and isn't happening again now. Well, it's very hard to get to know refugees when they're all locked up too. Uh, Mariam, uh, this um, Welcome to Australia uh, uh, that you are an ambassador for, um, it seeks to cult cultivate a culture of welcome. And uh, David's touching on culture in, in the remarks that he's just made. Changing culture is probably the hardest thing. In fact, I, I think it's almost impossible to change culture. There has to be something, as you've said, something for people to to touch on to and then it, it, it can grow. But how do you go about seeking to change culture with Welcome to Australia? Um, well, you're right in that it is, you know, um, cultivating, I guess, a culture of welcome and, and, the, and it does that in, in a few different ways. And I think one of them is is recognising the many, many success stories out there with of people, Australians with refugee background. And hence why I sort of um, declared myself a, a proud refugee and, and put that as an official part of my title. Um, and ironically, copped a lot of abuse for it, for why are you declaring yourself a proud refugee when you, you, you know, you're a proud Aussie? You're a proud Australian, and that should be your title. And that goes without saying, of course. Um, but the reason I did that is because there's, you know, there are negative connotations attached to the term refugee or asylum seeker. Um, there is this assumption um, underlying, you know, the discussion about refugees that um, that they're a cancer to society. They just take. They don't give. Um, you know, that they're, they're a burden. And it's about acknowledging um, that that's not the case. And so by you know, declaring myself a proud refugee, it's about, you know, it's easy to scapegoat a minority group that you know nothing about. But here's my example, here's my story, this is me, you know, this is my life and this is where I started and this is where I am now. And this, my story is not unique, um, you know, there are hundreds upon thousands of people just like me who have... Um, come here by plane or by boat, and I just probably should clarify that I, I, I did come by plane. Um, although <laughs> we, 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 did have, uh, we did have the incident on Twitter where, you know, I was told that my refugee, what was it, boat should have sunk at sea. Um, so it, hence why I, you know, what Welcome to Australia does is about highlighting the positive contributions of refugees. And I think that's how you can help change the narrative a little bit if you start to humanise them. Because, um, as I always say, it's very easy to, you know... To, I mean, the current rhetoric is dehumanising asylum seekers and refugees. But once you start to understand and humanise it, it's about, OK, well, next time I make a remark, I'm basically making a remark against someone like Mariam, you know, and you put that identity to it. And then it, that's how you can then start to change attitudes and then eventually culture mm. around it. 
David, let's um, hear a little bit about policy and uh, uh, where we are and what you're trying to do because when you delve into this, you just think, where would you start? But tell us. Tell us what we need to know about policy. Well, I mean, I, I think the truth of it is, in, in terms of policy in our country now, the, the, there used to be a question, the central question used to be, uh, is refugee policy in Australia at risk of uh, violating our obligations under the Refugees Convention? Uh, I think there's a different question now, and the question now is, are any of the policies, the refugee policies, capable of meeting those obligations? Um, I don't think there's any doubt that Australian policy in this area uh, represents Western world's, industrialised world's worst practice. Um, it, is, um, it, it involves a fundamental repudiation of our central obligations. And the central obligation is to ensure that people fleeing from harm are not exposed to further harm um, elsewhere. And yet our policies uh, are deliberately, um, uh, quite intentionally punitive and, and consciously cruel. They're consciously harming people fleeing from harm. And uh, they're also doing it in clear violation of, uh, of obligations that we've signed up to in a legal sense and also in a moral sense, I think. So the, 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 the problem is profound um, it's, and it's deep. And it's also a, a problem um, that relates to something also that's very central to the Refugees Convention, which is not actually about principle. Um, I think the Refugees Convention international human rights law is often thought of as sort of, uh, you know, about, uh, about grand principles, and there's no doubt that, that is the case. But actually the Refugees Convention is a fundamentally practical treaty. It was, it was framed in the aftermath of, the, of the, the, you know, the, the horrors of the Second World War, and it was essentially countries, states around the world coming together to come up with a safety net uh, uh, you know, for people uh, in need of protection in the future. Mm. And the fundamentally practical point of it, it was this, that it essentially meant, if you signed up, that as a country that you accepted that if someone got to your territory, that you would um, ascertain whether they needed protection. If they did, you'd protect them. Okay? It doesn't quite say that, but that's the point of it. And really what I mean by this in a broader sense in terms of Australia's role in the international in the international arena and in our region particularly at the moment is that Australia has essentially uh, formulated policies which are uh, completely contrary to that very notion of, country, of states sharing the responsibility for refugees. Instead, we've constructed a fortress around what in our region are bloodied fields where so many people need help. Um, and what we've done is instead constructed a fortress around that and we've also promoted that practice uh, in our region and with the consequence that if other countries continue uh, to, in tragically, and, and many have with these sort of events like we see in the Arman Sea recently with Rohingya um, at sea, if these policies are promoted of deterring people from getting to safety, blocking them, what it does is it shifts uh, people, it sweeps people from our doorstep to dangers elsewhere. And, uh, and there's a very, I think there's a very serious problem now with Australian policy, not only harming people here or who seek our help, 
but also the very dangerous export value of that type of yeah, policy I, around the world. Yeah, I was about to ask you that. that, yeah. that is that the most distinctive thing about our policies at the moment, that other people are going to start looking at them and saying, mm, we could try that too? Is it is it happening anywhere else? I mean, I think the, the, the first and foremost problem is, um, is the harm done to people seeking our help, yeah. okay? And, but it does not only, it don't, not, that question not only involves people coming by boat and by plane uh, to our country, but it also involves um, our interaction with the region, mm. as I mentioned. And because really uh, the only real, the, what I call a better plan, we mustn't stop talking about solutions because they, they sort of, they're suggestive of, you know, a, a sort of a quick fix uh, off the shelf, uh, you know, fixed to everything, you know, a silver bullet. But a better plan must involve us engaging with other countries in the region uh, to come up with a, a better plan to share the responsibility for protecting refugees so that wherever someone in our region goes seeking help, seeking protection, they are humanely treated, firstly. They, secondly, they receive a fair process with their claims. And thirdly, uh, if they need protection, if they're found to be in need of protection, that they be resettled to safety. I mean, they, they've got to be the goals. And yet, Australia's conduct is, is essentially anything but that in terms of promoting anything but that by essentially promoting a practice uh, which is driven fundamentally by short-term uh, political concerns, a quick fix uh, on the domestic front to stop the boats, and uh, is doing anything but, uh, in that context, anything but promoting a, a cooperative scheme, forging genuine partnerships of cooperation in our region. Um, I, I shudder when I hear solution hmm. to anything added on to people. Uh, it's, just, it's just not... It just doesn't sit well with me, but you rarely hear people talk about it. Mariam, how does the, the rhetoric, I mean, the, the solutions stop the boats, um, how does, you know, how does, how do you hear it? I, I just get incredibly frustrated every time. I think the main, um, you know, every time I'd hear stop the boats, I just literally, <laughs> um, it would really get under my skin. It, the, I think it, um, this three-word slogans um, coming out of the Abbott government is an absolute um, insult to our national intelligence, um, you know, but it, it seems to me that they think that that's the only way that you're going to... There's a few points. If you think about it, why are they engaging in this rhetoric? And you then have to look at often governments are meant to be a reflection of society and have we as a nation... Um, sunk that low, that, that our genuine um, views with respect to people that are different to us is such that, um, you know, this kind of rhetoric is required. Because when you think about it, it is um, the current policies, punitive in nature, are all about short-term political gain. Um, it is about pandering to the lowest, you know, to the lowest common denominator. It, there absolutely doesn't seem to be any... Um, intention to think about sustainable long-term, there you go with that word, solutions. Um, because if you think about what's happening right now, I mean, Indonesia, when we talk about regional solutions, um, this whole concept of turning back the boats and then paying people smugglers, um, you know, you would know better than I do, but 
it's possibly in breach of international and domestic laws. Um, so, you know, talk about annoying your neighbours, you know, when it comes to a policy that's incredibly important, cooperation is vital. Um, we have seen policies with an absolute neglect of the, the regional um, cooperation and relationships. And the other point um, that I wanted to make also on this issue is that we, we also... I think the other thing that's incredibly frustrating is that um, right now we've got almost... A, I think the UN calls it an, a nation of displaced people if you count the numbers in terms of how many people... And that's not just um, asylum seekers and refugees, but generally displaced people across the mm. world at the moment. It's, I think it's the worst it's been since um, World War II. Um, and from what I hear, almost the size of UK in terms of how many people are displaced right now... We really need to ask ourselves, um, as a dem you know, as a democratic nation, what role and what responsibility do we have to share, to, to take on a share of that burden, um, to take on a fair share, and then also ask ourselves what role did we, as a nation, play in contributing to some of those people who are now displaced. Um, we can't absolutely just wipe our hands clean when it comes to people. Uh, you know, fleeing persecution, um, yet we're right at the front when it comes to adding to why these individuals have had to actually flee their countries in the first place. I'm talking about military presence in various countries in the Middle East. Um, so we really do need to um, consider what role we've played and then what responsibility that then entails in terms of helping to resolve the issue that we've now got. Do you agree with that, David, that our role actually plays a part in it? Or is, is this something that should be above all of that? That it's just a simple part of being a nation state in the 21st century, a functioning one? No, I think I, I mean I think our, our role internationally is fundamental. I, I think one of the one of the central problems with Australian policy is parochialism. Um, it's almost as if Australia has sort of um, sort of engaged in this sort of fantasy that it can somehow just shut the door on the international community when it suits and sort of almost, in a way, construct a policy which is meant to be fundamentally humanitarian uh, in purpose and, and instead approach it from uh, the point of view of uh, as almost as if it's a question of sort of military strategy, you know, stopping boats and the like. Um, and, and yet... Um, we can't ignore the, the fundamental fact, and that is that um, that refugees, people fleeing uh, of, of, uh, and coming and seeking our help or other countries' help, uh, 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 and the, the international protection framework is a global compact for a global problem. Mm. You know, that's the so one. Of, I think it's one of the strangest things of our times is the sort of this strange. Um, you know, sort of uh, illusion that's been created in our country that we can somehow um, just shut the door on it all and come up with our own policy, which doesn't conform with our obligations, moral or, or, or legal. Um, so no, I, I just think the more that we go on with this, um, uh, the less the, the, the less sort of viable it becomes. And I guess the danger with it is also that if other countries. Um, you know, engage in these types of practices, and some other countries do to some extent. Um, uh, th there is a real danger um, that 
uh, it will continue to compromise that compact itself, the refugee compact, which uh, you know is represented largely by the Refugees Convention, um, because it has to involve, it inherently involves responsibility sharing. It's it, it, it's not about individual states, nation states deciding for themselves, and yet so much of the rhetoric, and indeed now the policy is precise in Australia is precisely based in this idea that we will decide for ourselves um, what responsibilities we have for refugees. And on this, I just sort of wanted to raise in the policy context one of the most serious things I think in this country, and that is the departure from the rule of law in our policies. Um, and um, one of the, one of the, the main uh, characteristics in the last 15 years of refugee policy has involved a radical deviation from the golden threads of our own legal system, not just the, not just international law, but in fact our own legal system. Um, you know, fundamental tenets uh, such as access to the courts, access to, uh, you know, anti-discrimination um, principles, um, access to habeas corpus, um, and access to the rule of law itself. You know, it's, it's, as we just recently celebrated 800 years of the the Grand Charter of the, the, the Magna Carta. You know, the fundamental point of the Magna Carta really being, a, a, you know, a sort of a, a, you know, a precursor to the, the, the notion of the rule of law. Uh, and yet I think we, we now, especially in refugee policy, but not just that, I think refugee policy is the sharp end of this problem. One of them in our country is a really serious erosion of this fundamental point uh, about placing limits on the power of rulers, right, of governments. And what we have in refugee law is a really radical, really radical example of uh, laws and policies being constructed in a way to where uh, arbitrary discretionary decision making uh, it becomes the norm, you know, that you keep the law as far away as possible uh, from, um, you, know, uh, you know, people's reach and from keep them as far away as possible from lawyers and courts, you know, so that we have laws now that have been passed in Parliament where I think what we're seeing is the law being taken out of the law. And what, what, what's, what, what's put in its place are laws and policies uh, where there is a serious imbalance uh, toward executive power, you know, where uh, where, where decisions on people's lives and whether, for example, they, they can be protected, stay here safely or be sent back to the possibility of persecution um, is more and more in the hands of uh, the government rather than what it should be. And this is the key point about the rule of law, really, uh, where decisions are made in accordance with a set of principles which, uh, which uh, sort of sit outside of the arbitrary whim of governments. Well, we're seeing that linked to with the the way the government's looking to deal with uh, terrorists or suspected yeah. terrorists as well. Yep. Mm. Um, is there anything uh, um, internationally that looks promising for Australia at some point, hopefully in the very near future, to recast our from a leadership point of view, um, how we treat asylum seekers uh, that could be helpful in going from where we are now to somewhere 
better. I know that there are plenty of countries, so many countries, doing a better job than we are, and poor countries and uh, so on. But anywhere where they've, they've had a shift in culture. Do you mean any other countries mm. where there's been a shift in culture? Mm. Um, look, I, I think one of the... It's a really difficult... It's a really difficult issue, this one, about looking... I mean, if I can put it a different way, are there, are there examples of best practice or good practice internationally uh, in the refugee policy area? And um, I, 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 the reality is um, not in any, in any clear, coherent form. Um, there are better practices uh, than in Australia... Uh, on detention in some countries. So in the UK, for example, um, uh, where there are very significant problems with refugee policy and very significant problems with application of the rule of law, there at least are um, statutory limits on how long a child... Very, very, uh, statutory limits on how long a child can be detained, which is a very short period of seven days. Um, so, and, and you know, on, you can go around different countries, um, looking at different countries and sort of more liberal practices on detention, for example, in other contexts, in the European context. Some other countries, um, the refugee processing um, uh, uh, arguably might be fairer in some contexts, but it's a real mixed bag, I have to say, and, and I think that it's difficult to pinpoint um, a, a, a country or a practice that is going to inspire better practice in this country at the moment. I actually think where the inspiration lies and where the hope lies, and I do see lots of hope. Um, I actually think the hope resides in going back to uh, this point about um, the experience in the Australian community once people are here and in front of us and not some ab abstract fear on the horizon that might be coming by boat to, to somehow pose a threat to us. Because the history of it is that when people are here uh, and are living in our community, it, it is a completely different story. It, it no longer matters how... Let's take Ali as a refugee. No matter, It no longer matters how Ali came by boat all of a sudden when he's living in the community. Um, what matters um, in many cases with, with the Australian community is how is, you know, how, how is he going, you know? Is he, is he, you know, is he get, has he got a job, you know? Is he um, able to, you know, join the local sporting club or whatever or... You know, um, you know, his kids, you know, going well at school, you know, those... And I, I think that that's actually a, a history that we've lost sight of. It's actually something our country... It's one of the golden threads of our country, and it's, historic, it's an historical fact, you know? And I think that drawing upon that, I think, is where a lot of the hope lies. And the historical fact, if I can come back to that, is that we're now not looking at 11,500 people who came by boat, as we did 15 years ago. We're looking at 31,000 people in our country, not, again, imaginary abstractions on the horizon, but people who are here, most of whom may well be refugees, who have been left in processing limbo now for several years, as many of you will know, and are now having their claims assessed, starting to have their claims assessed. That historical fact means something, to, I, I think, and it means something really important, and that is they're here, they're with us, and, and I, I would uh, imagine and hope that that welcome of people and that embracing of people in those situations uh, is, it could well, again, be transformative. Mariam, with your experience um, meeting uh, refugees who, who have been through more 
recent experiences of Australia's system. Are they um, coming out of that with a sense of hope once they're uh, those that have got through, that have got there, uh, that have been able to settle in Australia? How, how do they go after these recent times of trauma? I think there definitely is a sense of hope and there's a deep sense of gratitude to Australia and all the opportunities that they've been afforded. And that sense of gratitude is something I share as well. And I, I, you know, I feel that all the time. But I think um, along with that is, you know, they've had, on some cases, years of um, detention. They've had, um, you know, that's left irreparable trauma um, and psychological issues, which they now have to deal with. Um, coupled with the fact that despite the fact that they very much feel Australian, um, when they pick up the newspapers, when they turn on the television, when they listen to their Prime Minister, there is constant negative derogatory rhetoric around asylum seekers and refugees. So despite getting on with it and, um, you know, getting a job and doing all those things to the extent that they can, there is that constant reminder that you are a refugee um, and, you know, you're not really Australian. Um, I know if, with my experience, if I want to um, add something constructive to the debate about refugees or policy, politics, you name it, um, if that view or if that opinion is somehow critical of government, I'm, I'm the first to be reminded, don't forget you're a refugee. Don't forget you're not really an Australian. You know, you should be grateful. Um, so... So, yeah, so in, in, in response to your question, I think the experience is very much a sense of gratitude, but there is that constant reminder that you're not really an Australian. Um, and so that's difficult to live with because it, it does remind you of what it was like back home. And when there's um, a race to the bottom on, in terms of who can be cruelest um, on this issue, it, it's, it's not helpful at all. Um, because you want to, um, you know, I've been here 24 years and I've, I pretty much, I don't know any other home. This is my home. Um, but to be constantly reminded, almost on a daily basis, um, it, it's incredibly frustrating and demoralising. And, you know, it, it's difficult to have to live with that. And so um, refugees and asylum seekers, you know, who are out in the community, it's presumably be much, much, much harder for them. Mm. to have to deal with that. And it's also the problem with the reintroduction of policies like the temporary protection visa because yeah. really it, it's hard to think of, of, of a more monumental failure of public policy or social policy in this country in, in recent decades as that because... And we're, we're back in it now. It's just been reintroduced. But uh, the short history of it is that 15 years or, or, or thereabouts ago it was reintroduced. It was actually October 1999, but then it was imposed on that group of 11,000 people that I mentioned. And what happened was that essentially uh, it, it left people who are refugees in a twilight world living in our community being re-traumatised because of the uncertainty of the visa, of this short-term visa, this three-year visa, before... And so they endured this second wave of suffering before becoming Australians. You know, they ultimately, almost everyone in that situation ended up becoming a permanent resident. And now many of those people are citizens. We've helped many of them. 
but they endured this second wave of suffering in Australia before becoming Australians. It's hard to think of a more sort of counterproductive um, you know, policy than that, and yet it's been reintroduced. And so I think that there's a lot that we can do as a community to, to, to counter that, but it is a really important uh, point at the moment that this is what policy is doing for people in our community, most of whom probably will never be able to go back and, and would probably love to go back to their home countries in, in most cases, but can't because of the dangers. And so I think that this is something that we as a country have to confront. Are we, you know, are, are we going to, in 25 years' time, have a Prime Minister apologising for this? Um, uh, for what? For the creation of what may well be a damaged generation, a new damaged generation of people. And, and, and do we have to wait that long before taking action to seek change? Mm. I uh, do a regular radio spot uh, with uh, my sparring partner, John Roscombe, from the IPA. And whenever this issue comes up, which is often, um, he just throws at me every time the same line, and that is... What's your number, Sally? How many people do you want to let in? And if I can't give him a number, he doesn't really want to talk about it. And I don't have a... I'm not, I'm not interested in that uh, line of, of, of arguing, but I'm wondering, David, if you could give me a line, you know? What, <laughs> what can I say to him? <laughs> I'm glad you asked him, not me. <laughs> Oh, well, I'd, I mean, my first response would be, John, what's your policy? Yeah, you know, I mean, do, do you want to? Do, do you want to? And this comes up all the time. This question, it's not a new one. So, unfortunately, um, John Roskam can't claim to some sort of you know, form of genius or uniqueness on this front. But of course, because it's something that's that comes up often. And what it, what the problem with the proposition, of course, is that it's based on a hypothetical. Um, and it's also based on hypothetical, which has inbuilt fear. You know, it's it's the inbuilt fear put in, you know, cast in a more sort of uh, uh, sophisticated, um, perhaps sophisticated argument uh, or proposition. But really, it's it's based on this idea of well, you know, what are you saying that fifty thousand or a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or a million look overseas at all these? And, and the question is, are we actually talking about those types of numbers, really, in reality? That's the first question. But, but I think that the, the fundamental question that we need to ask is, what is the way to best manage an international reality? And that is that there are going to always be people seeking our help, and there are always going to be people seeking the help of other countries, right? What is the best way to respond to that in a way that um, best manages a range of issues? It best manages our obligations, which we've signed up to, unless we say we no longer believe in them, which we haven't, interestingly. Despite everything, uh, ne none, neither, none of the, the recent governments have actually ever said we don't actually agree with those obligations. Mm. It's a very interesting point. Mm. They've always said, actually, um, we actually are honouring them, those commitments, and uh, it's just in, we'll be, we're honouring them this way. So how do we honour our obligations? How do we do so in a way that is fair? And how do we properly manage those obligations together with other countries and share that responsibility? That's the question. And the ultimate question is not actually a numbers question in the end. The overarching question 
um, is how do we improve protection and minimise harm for millions of people in our region needing help? Right, that's the question. And, and then from there, we need to then look at how do we share that responsibility with other countries? Not how does Australia, see, it's very interesting, the question, it's again very parochial. What about us? You know, how many should we take, right, as a country? Not how should we work together in the region with other countries to share the responsibility for people in need of help? Uh, a responsibility that we've signed up to and a responsibility that we still say uh, we're obliged to, to meet. And also, I just wanted to say, I'm often, um, you know, people often say, well, what are you advocating for an open-door policy? And just, you know, like you said, ask you for a specific number. Um, we've come to a point where we're constantly asked to speak in sound bites and, you know, give us a number. And I think it, it's not about... We're so obsessed with closing the door and closing the borders that we're not actually focusing on easing the bottleneck. And that's what it is. There is a bottleneck there. There's these so-called imaginary cues that people are jumping... Um, and so it is about then understanding how do we ease that bottleneck by, you know, regional, regional solutions, regional cooperation. Can I, can I add something to it? it? It points to this question again, points to, I think, another big problem in our country and, and, and something that we, we must demand change on, and that is the development of a proper dialogue, a real dialogue in our country... Uh, which we don't have. Um, I mean, I think we live in an era of what I'd call the failure of politics, actually. I completely I, agree. I, I, I don't think politics works. Um, and that means that, as I said before, on refugees, you can reduce, you can distill the, the, the dialogue to which of the major parties can come up with, with the harsher uh, policies toward refugees, right? That's not a proper dialogue. Um, and end, endless interminable political jousting. We know that on the refugee issue, on really on all, all of the, the, the great challenges of our times, climate change and on it goes. That's, that's as it is at the moment. But what we don't have in our country is uh, at the moment, and we must demand it, I think, uh, is a proper dialogue which reaches above and beyond that uh, where we listen to, um, you know, for example the very real and genuine anxieties of many people in the community about, uh, about people coming by boat without a visa, OK? A and to listen and to understand those anxieties and fears and what they're based on, to, un to, to listen to anxieties which perhaps uh, 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 lead to a misunderstanding about fundamental tenets of our obligations, which lead, for example, to one of the most toxic myths in the refugee area, and that is the idea that people are jumping queues, right? But to listen to that and to not, for example, with people who are concerned about drownings at sea, to merely dismiss people who have those concerns or express them for whatever reason as sort of warlords of darkness, but rather to listen to them and to have a proper dialogue about those issues and together with a, a range of other views which won't agree with necessarily with those. We don't have that in, this, in, in our country. It's polarised to the point of um, where, where it's paralysed, actually, and uh, we can't, we we cannot progress without a proper discussion, and it's not going to come uh, from uh, Parliament at the moment. I can't see it clearly coming from there, but that should never stop us, of course, as a community having that dialogue elsewhere. I don't actually think there is an appetite. Um, 
you know, from government or community right now to actually educate ourselves about some of these myths that you talk about. Um, and when we talk about, you know, a race to the bottom with bipartisan harshness, as we're seeing right now, um, I keep asking the question as to why are we in this situation in the first place. Um, this weekend, Labor will have its annual um, conference, I think, in Melbourne. And one of the things that is allegedly on, on the table uh, for consideration is, is Labor supporting, um, the pol you know, a turn-back policy. And that's absolutely shocking. And there are people who um, ideologically opposed to the concept who are now coming, and, and I know someone specifically, who are actually saying, well, maybe we have to consider it. I think that's happened on both sides. Yeah. I think it's happened in the government, yeah. people in the government too. Yeah, but can I say on this too, that I, I, I think I have, I have a slightly different view about that whole issue because I actually think the truth of it is that... Um, that uh, Labor in political crisis um, you know, engaged three people to come up with a, a so-called expert report, the Houston report, um, which was a, a fundamental failure and came up with a central, it was alleged principle, alleged principle called the, the no advantage principle, which wasn't a principle because it didn't fit anything to do with refugees. But, but one of the recommendations in that report was to turn back boats and uh, I think it was we're safe to do so. Um, Labor, in fact, the Labor government adopted every single recommendation. And so, in fact, although I think it's been almost missed for some time, in a way, uh, I think it's uh, pretty clear that Labor at one, po at one point did actually uh, accept that as a policy. So the suggestion that they're somehow contemplating for the first time mm. adopting such a policy, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. A key uh, moment um, to me, if these things happen mm. in key moments, mm. is, you know, was Kim Beasley with Tampa. Mm. That, that, it, that was, to me, the moment where I, I saw the politics lost of, of having anyone with spine enough to say, sorry, this is, we're not going down that path? Well, you know, um, you know, we still was... You know, that problem um, exists to this moment, the very problem that, that developed from that, and that was uh, that Labor did something which, uh, you know, a, a major political party, I think, can never do, um, uh, and that is they didn't come up with a proper policy uh, on the issue at the time. I think my understanding is for for some time before the Tampa, uh, there'd been fierce debate internally about a policy, but there had been no decision on a policy. And, uh, and ever since, we've seen the effects of that, uh, which are, you know, are very, very serious, of course. Um, we're going to go to questions in a moment, so put your hand up if you'd like to ask a question. Um, and just quickly, in the meantime, I, I want to ask Mariam, what it is you think uh, that people are afraid of with boats and refugees? I think um, it goes back to, if you look at our history, there is, we have a fear of the unknown and that's not un unreasonable. Um, it's absolutely, you know, everybody fears something that they don't know, they know very little about and they don't understand and that is um, visibly, you know, different to us. Um, so I think that's that's possibly it. If, you know, people tend to pin their anxieties and fears on people that are different and, and they become the scapegoats. Um, and I think it's just about... It goes back to education. It goes back to, um, 
you know, presenting a counter-narrative and, and, you know, it, it should be facts over fear. Um, and those in positions of power and influence have a vital role of actually spreading those facts over fear, but they're doing the opposite. They're, they're peddling, you know, people's prejudices rather than actually challenging them, and that's a huge part of the problem. Yeah, and that fear does strange things to people, you know. It really does. It really that hysteria. Yeah. Well, it, it, it changes the way people think, I think, often in, in ways so that, for example, what I mean by that is that it, it gets... It reorients things so that, in the way that I mentioned before, people with problems coming with problems and need help become a problem, right? People who are threatened become a threat. And, and with it, um, there's the development, and I think we, we live in this, in times where um, somehow the, 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 yeah, the fundamental ethic of uh, the, the ethical question of why we should help people who come by boat seeking our protection becomes somehow complex, when I actually don't, I actually don't think it is uh, that the question about why we shouldn't send people to Nauru or Papua New Guinea, I don't think is complex in an ethical sense. I think in an ethical sense it's clear and simple. It's not, it's not the difficult part of it. And, and the simple point is that it is wrong to inevitably abuse and necessarily abuse the human dignity of another human being, uh, of one human being, in order to serve a policy purpose which may, for example, be stopping someone else coming because it doesn't have regard for that human being and their dignity, uh, and, uh, and that's just ethically wrong, right? The complex bit is how do you translate that in policy terms, and that is a complex question and one that we need to grapple with as a country. But fear allows us... I think it's fear opens the gate to that sort of making complex, that fundamental ethical question. And just quickly on that, you know, I, I sometimes speak to primary school kids, right, go and, go and give talks about refugees and just try and keep it pretty simple about, you know, people coming by boat and, and raising the question, why should we help? And not invariably I find children, you know, eight, nine-year-old children, seven-year-old children, you know, will, will put up their hand and say something like, oh, yeah, hold on, hold on... Um, my mum fell over the other day, you know, when we were out, and someone came, rushed up and picked her up and helped her and made sure she was all right. They make the immediate link between, you know, the, the, sort, of, the, the sort of proximity of someone being in front of you in need of help and helping them, you know, the basic ethic of that. And I think we've lost sight of that, in a way, in our country when it comes to these questions. You know, we sort of, in a way, need to expand our sphere of kindness because... We, we apply it on a daily basis to people in front of us, I think, and we think in those terms. Mm. Can I just say on that point, I think people take excessive pride in things that they did nothing to achieve. So what I mean by that... <laughs> like being well, born think, here. <laughs> correct. So you know where I'm going with this. Um, so I've, I often, and I have this debate with so many people, and I often say to them, did you choose to be born in Australia? And, you know, did you choose to be born into privileged circumstances in, you know, in Sydney or wherever the circumstances might be? Well, I, I certainly... Nobody asked me, did you want to be born in Kabul during the Soviet war? You know, I didn't have a say in that. I know what I would have said had <laughs> I had the option. But I think that's what it is. It's going back to... And you're right, kids get it. Um, we... Nobody chooses the circumstances in which they're born. And that's what we have to keep reminding ourselves. And part of the issue is not... Of course, it's about fear of difference, but I think there's a, an element of racism as well. There's an element of prejudice, which is that, you know, some are superior and others are inferior, and there is that element there as well. 
Hi, my name's Susan Durgham. I'm from Australians for Reconciliation in Syria. I'm also an ESL teacher, so I've met hundreds of refugees in the last four decades or so. Um, and I've also got a young Syrian who's been here for 18 months living in my house. I've got a question on a handout because I'm an ESL teacher and it's a question for everybody, for Sally, Mariam and David and the audience and the Wheeler Centre. If we're committed to supporting people who flee wars, how critical is it to have an ongoing conversation about, one, the role of our allies in wars and two, mainstream narratives that help fuel the hatred and divisions needed to prosecute wars? And would it be in the interests of asylum seekers if Australian human rights activists teamed up with anti-war activists? Um, we're obviously not all three of us going to be able to take that on, and I think um, in its entirety, but is there a piece of it each of you would like to respond to? Mariam? David? You go first. Um, I think that many human rights activists probably have teamed up with anti-war activists. And I think if you're going to have um, a constructive discussion about this, you do need to connect the dots. And you can't just talk about we have an asylum seeker problem, we have a boat problem that requires a solution when you're not looking at the root causes as to why people are fleeing persecution in the first place. And as David pointed out, we harp on about the problem, but we don't. We rarely discuss the root causes because it's, it's the inconvenient truth. Yeah, well, look, I, I, I agree with that. No, I think that very much so. And I think that um, one of the, one of the, the, the many um, sort of, um, you know, bizarre things really about the, the, what passes for sort of, you know, public dialogue in this country um, has been um, the spectacular failure to link the reasons why people are getting on boats and coming to this country, seeking our help uh, with... Uh, wars that we're fighting overseas. So it just so happens, of course, that and that the most obvious example is um, Afghan Hazaras, um, who are one of the largest groups of people who've been coming to, to our country um, in, in recent times by boat fleeing from exactly the same form of extremism that our troops have been fighting against or were fighting against uh, for a very long time in Afghanistan. And the failure to make the link between the two, um, I, I think is extraordinary and, uh, and should be made together with uh, root causes because the other issue is whether, I'm not sure, I mean, in a way your question is partly about strategy too and, um, and perhaps it would be a good strategy to link up with other, with other groups um, who, are, who are focusing on other issues. But I think that the, one of them that's crucial is also in our, a major blind spot in our policy on refugees is the, the failure to properly link it with our aid program too on the question of root causes, and that is um, to make far, a far greater contribution uh, to trying to assist countries where people are fleeing from uh, and transit countries to provide safer and more secure environments for people so they don't feel the need to, to flee or to, to move on uh, given the desperate circumstances they find. Mm -hmm. I think those links have to be made, as David said, but I, I, I would say instinctively not joining up those two particular movements. One, because I think the refugee 
issue in Australia deserves its own social movement. And I think that you don't necessarily have to be against war per se to see what's happening to refugees in Australia as, uh, as absolutely wrong. So um, that would be my two cents worth. Next. Thank you. Um, the Abbott government has pledged to spend $8 billion on border protection over the next four years. Engaging people on moral grounds just doesn't really seem to be working, and I worry that we are missing an opportunity to mount an economic argument that actually perhaps if people cannot be made to care because they lack compassion, empathy, imagination, whatever that perhaps if they are presented with, well, what would you rather spend the $8 billion on, your local school, healthcare, aged care, or locking up people in indefinite detention? And we don't seem to be having that conversation. Oh, and the I the debt and deficit disaster is over. <laughs> <laughs> David? Uh, well, um, I, I think there needs to be a multidimensional approach. I don't think that one single angle is ever going to uh, result in significant change. So I think that's the first point. Um, the second point is, um, and so I don't think just the moral argument or just a, you know endless campaigns trying to point out the um, the harm done and the moral injustice of it. I don't think they're, the, the history is that they don't involve major transformation in our country. Um, but the history is also that economic arguments, there have been many attempts to make those economic arguments and they have largely fallen on deaf ears. I mean, that's, that, that's the truth of it, that, um, that the economic arguments um, have not really, um, when they've been made, and they have been made, actually, they've, they've been made, perhaps they need to be made more, but they have been made. And the, the case is easy to make about, you know, how many hospitals, schools, et cetera, could, could, be, could be built uh, if we didn't have offshore processing. Uh, but... I think that, in a way, they haven't got traction because um, successive governments have been very successful at arguing that this really is, is about the future of our nation, in a way, and that it requires a military response to guard us from this threat which could involve um, major social disorder um, and chaos. And, um, and there's also been, a, of course, in, in, you know, from the tamper onwards in 9-11... Uh, at that time, there was, and, and ever since, there's sort of also been this bizarre entanglement between terror and those fleeing from it, and and so you have again a real difficulty, I think, um, in mounting those those um, those arguments in a way which which you'd hope would be obvious to the public, because I think that the public thinks that it's money, uh, or it seems to be anyway, it seems to be that there is an acceptance, a broad acceptance, that it's, it's sort of money well spent. Mm. I, mean, I, I think that's the truth of it. Um, it's not an argument, by the way, about not continuing to put that case. I think we do need to, but as part of a multidimensional approach, that's all. Uh, thank you for coming together and putting this honest conversation. Uh, okay, great. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, to David, especially regarding the laws, like, why have, like, what is it with the law that they have sort, sort of, you know, sort of twisted around laws and we have things like coming from the front door, back door, good refugee, bad refugee, you know, it's sort of 
I think that's just profound nonsense and making a mockery of the concept of justice, like a good refugee and a bad refugee. If you come from the front door, then you're this, and if you're coming from the bad door, then you know, you're sort of not, uh, you're not entitled to come. So one, they make the laws, they break the laws, and they put the onus on the laws. So how do we come out of this cycle? And Mariam, I wanted to ask you, uh, what are what are like concrete affirmative actions that the civil society can take? Because often the government puts the blame on, on our conscience that, you know, that we have already taken so many refugees, they have not yet settled in, and it's, it'll keep on piling up because they are not yet assimilated. So in terms of, I don't know what, I don't know if it's the government's ignorance or arrogance, but I don't care about it anymore. As a citizen, I have my own conscience, and I wanted to know what are certain suggestions in terms of affirmative actions that the civil society could take and perhaps you know, put an example in front of the government that, look, we are doing our, but can you just sort of do yours? Thank you. Mariam, you go first, um, and then we'll hear from There's there. so many points. I don't know which one to address. Pick one. Um, and I've just lost my train of thought. What can, what can civil society do, I think, was the one that... Um, look, I'm, thank he, you. He, I'm going to pose a question to the audience, a hypothetical. Um, if the... Uh, loads of people arriving here by boat um, happen to all be English backpackers, what do you think the response by civil society and government and everybody, what do you think the response would be? It would be very different. If we're very frank, the response would be very different. Or white Zimbabwean farmers fleeing. <laughs> would, we, would we send them to Nauru? So... By posing that question to you, I think I help, you know, answer part of the question, which I think this goes back to it's not just people fleeing persecution, innocent people, you know, children get it. Someone is in need of help, you help them. But the approach we have is, and, and this is a historic issue, it's not just uh, people of Middle Eastern background that we have a problem with. Once upon a time we had... You know, Australia as a nation had a problem with anyone who was not white. And I think that is a stain on our history and that element continues. And so part of the issue of addressing the hysteria around asylum seekers is addressing the issue that we as a nation have with Australian Muslims. Um, and it might be... People might disagree with me connecting the two... But I think there is a there's a deep connection there, and if you kind of feel like you take one step forward and then ten steps back, and I'm not going to try and simplify the issue. There are very complex issues at play in terms of when we talk about integration, and I hate these words by the way, assimilation, and these words. Um, but it is about having a conversation about why we are still having this conversation about. Middle Easterners, Australian Muslims and the general fear that government whips up about them. Because if we can't come to terms with that issue, we're always going to have a problem with the asylum seeker issue. So, and and how do you address that as a society? Forget about government because they're not... <laughs> I have no hope in them at the moment. Um, as a society, it's about reaching out to, the do to those who are different to you. It is about breaking down those barriers. It is about welcoming people. Um, because it does work both ways. 
We say we have pockets of groups that live in their ethnic enclaves and they don't integrate and they don't assimilate, but we don't ask why. I have young people coming up to me saying, my name is Muhammad. In order for me to get a job, I'm going to have to change my name or my resume to Michael. And there are proven examples with young Muslim Australians who have law degrees, who have sent out resumes. This was an article in the AFR and did not receive replies purely based on their name. Qualifications identical. The same resume sent out again with a different anglicised name and he gets responses. So the question is, what barriers are we erecting in society which is making it for people who are different to integrate, to assimilate? And what role do we have in ensuring that we help those people feel welcome so they don't feel disillusioned, so they don't need to resort to, you know, working in a service station in an area where they feel comfortable because everybody's like them. That's, that's an onus on everybody. And it's not just about putting the onus on the minority communities to integrate. The, the onus is on everybody. And we really need to highlight that more often. Mm. So I'll answer the other, um, the, 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 the first of the questions. Um, the, the, uh, the, this sort of very deep uh, myth in our society about the good refugee and the bad refugee, and the sort of for, um, uh, everyone must understand the, the, the basic formulation in the room, so I won't say much about it, but I think it put simply, the, the good refugee, um, so-called, is the, is the refugee that waits patiently in a refugee camp for resettlement. Uh, and a visa to come to Australia, um, and the, the the fact and the, the bad refugee is uh, the refugee that doesn't wait uh, and that takes whatever steps are necessary uh, to uh, to get here, whether by plane or by boat, uh, without a valid visa. Okay, and um, the 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 good refugee. Just a quick fact on this: that the the good refugee um, on on the facts is if if they're born. A young, boy, a young baby boy in a refugee camp, they're likely to die at the moment as an old man in that refugee camp. So that's the, that's the reality. Um, so that's the good refugee. Um, and uh, the, as for the bad refugee, um, normally um, the, the myth also introduces this, again, this um, idea of the queue jumper, of someone having done something wrong. And it's a very deep thing, in, I think, in the Australian psyche, this idea of the queue jumper. Um, I, I was reading some history recently of refugee policy, and in most recent times, in fact, and I, I don't know if for the first time, but certainly in political terms, the, 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 the person that actually introduced this into the Australian political conversation was Gough Whitlam, queue jumper. He was the one that introduced it uh, uh, into into the political conversation. And um, so, you, you know, it's important to read our history too and to understand our history here. It's a troubled history on these issues. I'm going to do something, I'm going to sort of uh, do something uh, to, to, to honour this idea of a proper dialogue in our country. Um, my, normal, my normal point which would follow would be that um, it's wrong to, uh, to, say that, uh, to, to say that someone's jumping a queue because a queue suggests something like... Uh, you know, standing in a supermarket queue, which uh, means that you'll eventually get the outcome you want, and that is to be able... And that that sort of notion is wrong in this context, right? Because there are no proper queues. 
How about this, though? And I think this is the sort of conversation when I talk about opening up the dialogue in our country, because that, that, that argument is correct and it's one that uh, many people put uh, in my sector and more broadly. But how about this, too, is to go back and say, not just dismiss those that do uh, say that people are queue jumpers as, you know, warlords of darkness or whatever, or sort of ignorant and rednecks or whatever, as so often happens, but what about um, having a conversation where we try to understand a bit more why people think that and say that and what's behind it? And maybe, I don't know the answer actually, but maybe the answer might not just lie in what often is the counter to it, and that is that they're constructing, deliberately constructing or, or ignorantly constructing a, a, a falsehood, right, a false construct, but, but rather maybe some people actually are meaning something different. They might actually be meaning with so many people in need of protection worldwide or in our region, is there a better way of managing that so that more people get protection and that we work with other countries to come up with a scheme? I don't know, but we, we need to start having this conversation because it's really stuck, you know, in the, it, as you say, in this sort of good refugee, bad refugee, uh, yeah, you know, dynamic, where in fact refugees come from all walks of life and the common dark threat is that they're fleeing from persecution because of things that are innate about them, like, you know, the, their race or their religion. That concludes our discussion for this fortnight. I should mention that it's been almost exactly two years since the Fifth Estate last focused on asylum seekers and refugees, with former Australian Defence Minister Peter Reith and ex-Guantanamo Bay lawyer Dan Morey. Unfortunately, it's a much more interesting story if you've got a boat bobbing around and people in the water. Um, the, the reality is the stats are more, more asylum seekers potentially arriving by other means than boats. Um, yet the media really loves the boat stories. The only time that you see the support for migration falling is when the public look at the process by which people come to Australia and they lose confidence in the management of the scheme. You can listen to the rest of that talk at wheelercentre.com. We're about to take a break from the series for four weeks, but we'll be back in late August, teaming up with Melbourne Writers' Festival to bring you two new episodes. First up, Sally will chat with Barry Cassidy and Latika Burke about journalism in the past and present, followed by a conversation with correspondents Jamie Tarabay and Roger Cohen about the influence of ISIS. Until then, leave us a rating on iTunes, tell a friend about this podcast, or check out our other podcasts at wheelercentre.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.